Welcome to the podcast of the Sunday morning worship service of the Heartland Church of the Nazarene. We're a community of faith learning to love God and our neighbors as ourselves. Welcome home. Today's sermon text is from Mark 5, 21 through 43. The passage will be on the screen for you, or if you like, please turn to Mark in your Bible. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they had come to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means get up, or little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Any of you actually like crowds? Crowds of people? Yes? No? Who, who, who likes crowds? Are you? No? That's not surprising, Bryce. Uh, who, who really just would rather, like, I don't know, gouge your eyes out with spoons than be in a crowd? Okay. You can't be both, Bryce. Okay. Well, I, I want you, I mean, and we haven't had a whole lot of crowds recently, um, although here it's, it's better. Uh, in some places it's not, um, you know. But I want you to imagine yourself being in a crowd again, uh, what that feels like, the, um, I don't know, the, the, the weight of it, because there's a heaviness to it, right? There's a, a pressing of bodies together and there's your it's impossible to move anywhere quickly maybe you're stepping on people's toes and and things like that I just want you to 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 key into that and uh, a little bit and just imagine what that's like I 
I, I have this one image whenever I think of crowds of uh, one day in high school. I, I went to a kind of a larger-ish high school. It wasn't super huge. But uh, I don't know what, my, what year it was. I was taller than most everybody else in the hallway. I, I think I've shrunk a little because um, I'm not like that tall. But I remember looking out and this, there was one place in our high school where uh, the building transitioned from a, an old part of the building to a new part of the building that kind of bottlenecked down. And every day, like, on my way to history, which was in the old part of the building, I, like, I had to go through this mass of giant people, and it was just crowded, and you couldn't, like, so this is the East Coast, and, and people aren't nice on, in the East Coast, uh, or at least sometimes. And so you're, like, you're, you're jostling, and it's just, you, you're afraid you're going to miss your class because you can't make it through this mass of pubescent teenager uh, to get to where you're going. And uh, there's just a sense of urgency and angst about being able to get to class uh, on time in the midst of all of those crowds. Well, crowds in the Gospel of Mark, especially this particular part, are an ever-present reality. Uh, wherever Jesus goes, there seems to be a group of people who are out to, to see him or touch him or to hear him. And so this has been the case. He's been around the Sea of Galilee and the crowds have been, have been there and it's been oppressive and he's tired and his disciples are tired so they want to get away and they hop in a boat and they sail to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Gentile territory actually to try to escape the crowds. Well, while they're over there, um, one of the first things that happens is, well, there's a, a crowd and they're greeted by this guy who's like demon-possessed. And uh, the story goes, there's a lot of demons in this guy and uh, Jesus wants to cast them out. And the, the demon says to Jesus, uh, you can, but send me into that herd of pigs over there. And uh, so Jesus does. And he, he, he casts out this demon into a herd of pigs and the herd of pigs immediately run off the edge of a cliff into the sea and drown and die. And so as you can imagine, uh, and those of you who have livestock, right? How would you feel if your livestock certain, uh, just all of a sudden ran off the edge of a cliff into the ocean, like the sea or a lake, and died? Like, you'd be pretty mad, right? Because it's a significant investment uh, in what you have. And so these people, Jesus, he has come here to get away from the crowds, and he is not welcome because he's, he's cost them this great financial burden. And so they're like, uh, please leave. So Jesus has to get back in the boat and he goes back across the, the Sea of Galilee uh, where he was from before and he gets off the boat and the crowd is there again. I don't know how news traveled uh, in those days, but Jesus has time to make two crossings. There are some people who are able to go around the lake or the sea and I'm sure they have told people that Jesus is coming back and so they are there to meet him. And they get off the boat, and, and Jesus is immediately confronted by a guy named Jairus. And now uh, Mark tells us that he is a, he's an important official in the synagogue. So after the exile happened, uh, when they couldn't all get to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, different locations would have a synagogue. It's kind of like a church. They would meet every Sabbath to discuss and teach the scriptures. And so all of these little towns had little synagogues. Actually, whenever you had 10 Jewish men, you could have a synagogue. And so this guy, he, he's maybe not the leader of the synagogue, but he's an important person. And he's likely got some means as well because, uh, well, later in the story, uh, he might have hired professional mourners. But that's just, that's odd. But it's part of the story. He might be a person of means. Anyway, he's a significant person in the community. And he comes up to Jesus 
And he interrupts whatever Jesus is doing in the midst of this crowd of folks. And he tells Jesus, uh, here we go, we'll just read it. Then one of the synagogue's rulers came, named Jairus, and came there, seeing Jesus, fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she may be healed. So Jesus went with him. So here you have this, uh, this kind of important person uh, in the community, works his way through the crowd, and he throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Now, you, if you were a man in, in Palestine and Jewish in Jesus' day, you didn't just throw yourselves at the feet of anybody. Uh, these kinds of actions, more than they might today, have, have symbolic meaning. So if, if you're going to throw yourself on the ground or uh, put yourself in a position of, of lowliness and compared to someone else, like you're making a statement about who you believe that you are in relation to the, in relation to the person that you're addressing. Uh, we don't know how Jarius knows uh, Jesus or knows of Jesus. It may be just secondhand knowledge. He, he might have just heard what Jesus has been doing, and so his daughter is sick and dying, and he wants more than anything for her to be healthy. And so he lowers himself, so he throws himself at the feet of Jesus and begs him. So pleaded earnestly. Uh, the more could be like pleaded insistently, persistently. Uh, Jarius isn't going away. I, I can imagine himself, I, I picture this in my mind, Jesus dusty, and there's people all around, but they've kind of carved out a little bit of a circle, and, and the man is on the ground begging Jesus to come and do this, and he has grabbed a hold of his ankle and won't let go. Sometimes like my children do <laughs> when they think they're funny. Uh, move it like that. I can imagine that's what, what Jarius is doing. Uh, Jesus, though, he, he doesn't, we don't know what Jesus says to him exactly, but he's like, sure, let's go. And so they get up and they begin to move. And, and the crowd is still there. And, and uh, if I had angst about getting to class on time in the midst of a crowd of people in high school, can you imagine what Jairus must be feeling? His daughter is sick. And there are all these people surrounding him, all these people who are trying to get in Jesus, who are obstacles in the way of the restoration and healing and salvation of his family. I can't, like, I, I, I'd, be a, I'd be a mess. I'd probably be screaming and yelling and saying, get out of my way. And this crowd slowly, slowly moves along. Well, Mark uh, interrupts this story, and this is one of Mark's favorite things to do, by the way. He likes to have uh, a story sandwich, an Oreo, if you will. Uh, so you've got Jairus in this case, and he's the, uh, the chocolatey cookie. And we've got this next story about this lady. She's the cream-filled, and she's squished in between there. And so he interrupts this, this story about Jairus to tell this other story about this bleeding woman. And so we're still in the midst of this crowd and this woman who has had a condition for 12 years, we're told, also wants to see Jesus. Now we're told that she's got a bleeding problem. And it's likely, uh, well, it would have made her unclean, regardless. Any, any bleeding issue rendered you unclean and it kind of made you be away from people for fear of... Uh, causing your impurity to be off on other people. Uh, there's good reason to suspect that this is a menstrual bleeding pr- problem. Uh, 
And this would have made it, this is not how we think today, thankfully. This would have made it especially unclean and impure. And she has spent all that she has had over the years on doctors who have tried to cure her of this ailment and but with no avail. So for 12 long years, she lives on the edge of her community, unclean, alone, an outcast on the margin. Uh, every day, a- any hope that she might have had about a family or children or a life that included meaningful relationships was just like it wasn't a thing. And so she is desperate. She is as desperate, maybe even more so than Jairus would be to find Jesus. And she thinks to herself, if only, if only I can get to Jesus, if only I can touch the hem of his garment, then I can be clean. I can be healed. My life can return back to normal. Now, we've already established that this is a crowd. And there is no way that you are making a way through this cloud without touching other folks. And so this woman who is unclean and, and who, I, I don't think we can grasp in our, uh, our community, in our context, just how like purity, impurity worked in Jesus' day. Like, if you were pure, you were clean, you could go to the temple, you could go to synagogue, you could participate in all of life, but if you weren't, well, then maybe God had done, maybe you had sinned and, and God's punishment was on you and you couldn't just participate in anything. And so she's got to get to Jesus, but she's got she's to break like every rule in the purity book to get to him. So she is, she is taking a chance, uh, weaving her way through the cloud, crowd, obviously, um, without, without a doubt, touching other folks. By the way, with this kind of, this kind of bleeding and things like that, like, even if you touched something that someone with that kind of a condition had, that object was impure and unclean, and then that transferred to you. So this woman, she is desperate. She knows she is making all of these folks around her unclean. She is, she's doing something that you just would never, ever do to anybody, and she finally makes her way to Jesus. She's within arm's reach, and she says, if I just reach out and touch his hem, I know I'll be healed. Now, uh, if, if uncleanliness and impurity had the ability to kind of travel, uh, it was thought that if, if, a, if a, a man who had healing abilities, a, a powerful man like Jesus, that if you just would have to touch something on him to be healed. But there was also this chance that, that your uncleanliness and impurity uh, would un- uh, overcome the purity and cleanliness of this person that you were hoping had the power to heal you. She is taking all kinds of chances. There is, if this thing goes wrong, she's not only polluted an entire group of people, but she's ruined Jesus as well. Well, it doesn't work that way, right? She reaches out. She touches Jesus' garment Mark tells us she is immediately healed. Twelve long years of sickness. Twelve long years of loneliness and ostracization. Outcast. Twelve long years of not being able to worship with her family. Twelve long years of, of not having meaningful relationships and contacts 
with people. Sure, no physical contacts with anybody. Done, gone, and over. Uh, If she was scared before, she's probably still scared right now. Uh, Because Jesus knows, in that moment, Jesus knows that somebody touched him with the faith that, that drew healing and restorative power out from him. I can imagine the conversation that happens in between these things. Uh, and Jesus turns to his disciples and he's like, who touched me? And they're like, hey, uh, Jesus, I don't know if you know, but like everybody touched you. And he's like, no, 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 I felt it. I felt it. Something came out of me. Somebody touched me and power came out of me. And uh, so he looks around and I can imagine this woman in fear. Maybe a little bit more courage now that the, the thing has happened and, and healing has taken place, but she steps forward and she says to Jesus, it was me. Like, I touched you. I love, uh, I, I don't know what she response she was expecting. If she was res- expecting uh, anger, how dare you put me in danger like that? How dare you endanger all these other people? How dare you Risk the, run the risk of impurity being passed along. Jesus says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in in peace and be freed from your suffering. It's significant that he calls her daughter. She goes from being an outcast, someone on the very fringes of society, being completely unclean, to being fully reincorporated into the people of God. She goes from being an outsider to being a daughter of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This, in Jesus' context, for, for the Jews, and I think for us too, this is, this is healing and restoration that transcends even the physical healing that she has received. This is restoration and redemption of the, of the highest, the highest order, being re-included in God's people. Well, uh, that part of the story is over. And just as he's finishing up, just as Jesus is finishing up that conversation with the woman with the bleeding problem, a servant from Jairus' house comes and says, your daughter is dead. Don't worry about it. There's no more need. There's no more need to worry the master, the teacher. Just let's go home. Can you imagine what he's feeling at this point? Like, I wonder, not only the crowd kind of wrapped up this anxiety and anxiousness in him because the, the pace was so slow, but, but now maybe, maybe, just maybe if this lady, if this woman hadn't interfered, maybe they could have gotten to his house soon enough and his daughter wouldn't have died. I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's in the pit of despair. Uh, maybe he's just angry and furious. Or maybe, maybe he's hopeful. Maybe he's hopeful because he's just witnessed the power of this guy that he's only ever heard about. And maybe he has hope that even though his daughter is dead, that something might happen. Something good might happen. 
Well, they make their way, uh, they make their way to, the, to Jairus' house. And they show up, and uh, death and sickness are all over first century Israel. Like, mortality rates are high. Uh, children didn't survive very long. You didn't live super long. And so death was just a, kind of an ever-present reality. And because it was so prevalent, sometimes people, if you had means, you hired uh, professional mourners. <laughs> I don't really know why. This is just what the books tell me happened. Uh, to, to go outside your house and to wail and to mourn uh, for you as a sign to your community that something bad has happened. Maybe so that they can enter into your suffering with them, so they can sympathize and empathize. Anyway, Jesus rolls up to the, uh, to the house and he sees all this commotion and he says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they're like, they stop wailing and crying for a moment and they're like, yeah, asleep. Like, forever asleep. Like, not, not going to wake up. I don't know what is running through their mind. I don't know what's running through Jairus' mind, but but uh, maybe he has, maybe his hope is growing now that he's reached it. Maybe hope is growing now that Jesus is saying, hey, she's just asleep. And maybe there's just this hope it's so small that Jesus could change things. So Jesus takes the mother and the father and the three, three of his disciples and they go up to the room. And in privacy, Jesus reaches down and he grabs the little girl's hand and says, get up. And immediately she gets up and starts walking about. The, the emotional roller coaster that Jairus has been on this whole day, it, just be, it would be exhausting. If, funny thing, at the end, Jesus tells nobody to, he tells them not to tell anybody about it. I don't know how that's going to work because there were like people outside mourning saying that she was dead. Like, what, how else are you going to explain this? I, there, there's a common thread that, that runs through both of these stories. And, and I guess you, get, you can guess it's not hard to find out. Like there, is, there are two people who desperately seeking God's healing, God's restoration, even God's salvation. I know we always talk about that just in terms of like, we're going to go to heaven when we die. But all throughout the gospel, salvation has some really concrete meaning. You know what I forgot to do, kids? I forgot to tell you what Jesus says to Jairus before they come home. He says to him, don't fear, only believe. Man, I can't believe I did that. Well, there's this hope and this longing for God's salvation, and Jesus brings it. He brings it both to the, to the girl who has died and he's both to the woman with the bleeding. But I think it goes beyond just kind of mere fixing the situation, right? Healing the woman with, with uh, bleeding, that's, that's just kind of fixing something and she's eventually going to break and die again or die for the first time. Uh, even in a sense, the little girl who's, who's been effectively raised from the dead, she's going to grow up and someday die as well. 
But I think in this story, there's something bigger and larger at work that, that maybe is pointing us towards something that's not necessarily right here and right now. Uh, but in the resurrection of this little girl, there is, well, there is hope for the future. There's hope for the future that, that even, though, even though Jesus took his sweet time in getting to their house, even though he stopped and did other things along the way, that God's salvation is still coming. That, that even though it doesn't come in the, in the time that we think it should, even though that it is delayed and we can't understand why, that in a small way, God's new creation is beginning to happen. And it's not just fixing the problem. It's not just a band-aid, but it is the beginning of God's, we'll say, end time healing of all that is broken in creation. It is the beginning of restoration and the redemption and the complete and full salvation in all of its magnitude for the world. I think, I think this passage speaks to us in, in that same kind of way. Because uh, we're in a world of hurt, right? A lot of people are. Uh, we don't get along. Nobody gets along with anybody, especially on the internet. Uh, we've got global pandemics and friends with cancer and death, and it's... it's we don't need to hire professional mourners because we've got plenty of people just doing that by themselves. But I think this passage speaks into it, and, and I think Jesus' words to Jairus become that much more important for us. That as we wait for God's salvation to become complete, as we wait for God to, to finally and fully come back and to do, undo all the brokenness, to heal all those who are sick, to mend broken relationships and bodies. In the midst of us waiting and hoping, saying, Jesus, if you only would come back just a little bit sooner, or if only you would, you would heal this here and now, Jesus says to us, do not be afraid. Only believe. I think that's hopeful. <laughs> I know it doesn't maybe feel that way. And sometimes we don't want to believe that Jesus is actually doing anything here and now, and so we kind of try to take things into our own hands. We make a royal mess of things. But the message of hope that we have, we don't, we don't know the timetable of things. It's hard to watch loved ones grow old or sick it's hard to see friends struggle with things. But in the midst of that, we hear Jesus' words. Do not be afraid. Only believe. I wonder if maybe the appropriate place to start sometimes for us is when we find it hard to believe. To be like, I'm scared and I don't believe. Help me to believe. 
I don't know. I, well, I know some of your, where some of you are at. It may be that you are desperately longing, like Jairus and the woman with the bleeding, for some kind of healing. And you think, oh, if, if only I could get, if only I could get to Jesus. And you're scared. I don't know, just, I want you to hear Jesus' voice saying, do not fear, only believe. We're going to sing a song, and I think it's perfect for this in in a minute. But after I pray and we we sing the song, I I want you, as we're singing it, to, to think of all the places that you are hoping and desperately longing for God's salvation and restoration and redemption to come to. The places that you know need God's salvation. I want you to to give those things and places and people and times to Christ. And to confess in your heart, I am scared, but I believe. And to have hope and faith that the God who has created the internet, or not the internet, wow. That's a way to break a serious moment. God who has created the world and everything in it, who, who knitted us together in our mother's womb, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, will eventually bring about healing and salvation, even if it's not here and now. I, I had a, uh, Gerald, uh, Gerald Taylor has cancer. I don't know if you know all that. Um, it's, not, it's not super good news. But I've talked to him several times, and I think each time he has said things that, that make me believe that he truly believes what Jesus is saying. That, that in the face of cancer and death, possible death, that he is not afraid because he believes that even if God doesn't heal him now, and he might not, who knows? In the face of that, that he knows that one day all will be made right and God's healing will come and it will be whole and right and good again. Let's pray. Dear Lord, in the, in the midst of the crowds of our world, that seem to block and complicate and make us anxious and afraid. In the midst of those things, we come to you desperate for healing and salvation for us and for our friends and for our world. We, we long for you to do something about the, the, just the brokenness that's all around us. And we're, we're so scared that, well, that you're not going to get there on time. Or we don't believe and we're scared. And so we ask that, well, that you would help our unbelief and that you would help our fear. 
that in the midst of all those things that we would truly trust that you are bringing your salvation and your restoration to us, to our world, and to calling us to participate in bringing about those things when we can. But at the end of the day, oh Lord, help us to rest in the fact that even if it is a long time in coming, that ultimately you're going to make all things new again. Lord, we ask that you would help our unbelief. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our Sunday morning worship service. For more information about the Heartland Church of the Nazarene, please visit heartlandnaz.org.